Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 28th in California. Um, it's a nice sunny day here. Sun feels very good on my body, and we're talking today about bodies, uh, human bodies, that is. Uh, yesterday, I had um, a young science journalist, Brendan Burrell, on the show. He has a new book out, The First Shots, about the so-called epic rivalries and heroic science behind the race to the coronavirus vaccine. And we discussed the vaccine, of course. And I asked him why only 60% of Americans had chosen to take the vaccine. There are still 40% of Americans holding out. And he said something about the body and our understanding and misunderstanding of the body. It's still, of course, a profound mystery as manifested by a lot of the confusion, chaos, and perhaps just the ignorance around the, the vaccine debate in America. So today, we have another take on the human body. Uh, this time with an MD, Jonathan Reisman. He has a wonderful new book out. It's quirky, um, uh, anecdotal, but also profoundly scientific. The Unseen Body, uh, a doctor's journey through the hidden wonders of human anatomy. And I'm thrilled that uh, Jonathan is joining us from uh, Philadelphia. I think all doctors live in Philadelphia. I don't know what it is about Philadelphia. Uh, Jonathan... Welcome. Uh, what would you say to people? Uh, you don't really talk about COVID in your book, fortunately, because I think it's become a rather boring subject. Everyone's writing, talking about it. Uh, but what would you say to people who don't believe that their body is ready for the vaccine, the COVID vaccine? Well, I'm naturally, I'm a big proponent of the vaccine. I worked in the emergency room throughout the pandemic. I've seen a lot of people get very sick. I worried about my own health, bringing the disease home to my own family. So when the vaccine came around, I couldn't have jumped for it faster personally. Um, not everyone is at as high risk as an ER doctor exposed to it uh, kind of all day, every day. But I'm certainly a big proponent of it. I do believe nothing is risk-free, but I believe whenever I offer a treatment or any sort of intervention for my patients, it's always a balance between the risks and benefits. Always, there's always that uh, equation. In fact, I often say if a medicine or some purported treatment has no side effects or no downside, I often don't believe it works because everything has side effects. Um, but I think with these vaccines, the benefits outweigh the risks for the very, very large majority of people. So I'm a big fan. I also think vaccines are kind of one of the most amazing advancements in human history of all the amazing technology humanity has created in the last few thousand years. Vaccines, basically a way of hacking the immune system, which is one of the most brilliant uh, designs of the human body and other you know, organisms we've discovered this way of hacking it to rid ourselves of some very serious diseases. And I just never cease to be amazed by that. Uh, I really enjoyed the book or I'm enjoying the book, uh, The Unseen Body. 
Uh, it's no frills. There's nothing metaphysical. It's deeply scientific, but also personal and very much rooted in your own experiences emotionally and above all else, geographically. Do you think in our age of YouTube and Facebook and uh, social media and this hyper narcissistic age that we tend to fetishize our own bodies, which is one reason why you have a large proportion of Americans who don't believe that anyone has any right to access their bodies. In other words, that's a rather long-winded way of saying, what would the vaccine deniers learn from reading your book about the body, the unseen body? Well, I'm not sure what they would learn would convince them to change their mind on the vaccine. But I do think that people are, um, and there's a lot of universal things about people. And being in the medical field, I think you learn a lot about humanity's shortcomings, including your own, including my own. I'm only human. I think people use their body inconsistently. You know, I remember in high school, I had some friends who enjoyed drugs. And they would say, you know, when it came to certain industrial chemicals, they would say, no way will I ever let this pollute my precious, pristine body. But at the same time, they were willing to ingest whatever drug a guy on a corner was selling to them. So and I think that inconsistency is universal. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is perfectly consistent, me included. And so I think that people use their bodies, uh, you know, to, let's say, if they don't want something, they'll use their pristine body as a reason or, you know, other things that are even more dangerous they might not care about. So people are very inconsistent. They're only human after all. We're only human after all, even doctors. Um, you had a piece in the New York Times, I think, from 2014 uh, about bodies that guard our secrets. And in a sense, and there's something of this um, in, the, in the book, um, the unseen body. Uh, you're revealing our internal secrets, aren't you, in this book? It's uh, there's a lot of stuff about feces, about brains, about lungs and blood and other stuff that no one really wants to read about, but you're uncovering it and telling the truth, or at least your truth about this. Is that fair? Yes, I think it is. I, I, in this book, I try to take readers on the journey of discovery that I went on when I started medical school and started learning about uh, the human body. You know, the human body in many ways is sort of a background to our daily lives, one that we often ignore. In the book, I talk about how the body has its internal life and also its external life. And for the large majority of humanity, me included, the external life is sort of all you pay attention to as long as everything's going well on the inside. You know, it's only when some symptom, some pain, some abnormality uh, draws our attention to the, our inner life and often makes us scared about what might be going on in there. Um, and when I, you know, when I started my medical training, my medical school, on the very first day of medical school, uh, they put us in the anatomy lab and had us start dissecting the cadaver. I was surprised at that time that there was no warning, no lead up to it right away in there. Here's your scalpel. Here's a dead human body. Now start cutting it. Um, and, and so I, in my book, I try to pull back that curtain just as abruptly or just as uh, shockingly in some cases. Yeah, I just ate my uh, breakfast, Jonathan, before reading the section about you um, 
chopping up a, a particularly fat person. And I, I must say it, it didn't endear me to the breakfast, but I guess your book wasn't written uh, to be read after breakfast, probably before. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Perhaps there should be some warning, but I'm, I hope that you put down your breakfast and not the book. But I do well, think my that... breakfast. Uh, no, I'm, we, we, we shouldn't make doctor jokes here, Jonathan, about the breakfast coming up after reading your book. That's that's for off 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 screen. Um, tomorrow, um, I have very distinguished theorist of design from Stanford University, Bill Burnett, on the show. Um, he has a new book out about designing your own life, uh, and I'm curious as to your thoughts on the body in terms of design. Um, you know, the great 17th and 18th century anatomists, the kind of the, the scientists who discovered a, a, um, a post-metaphysical body saw it as a form of design. How do you think about the body? It all fits together. Your chapters fit together on the brain, on liver, on feces, on blood. Um, is there a design, perhaps even a um, uh, a, a metaphysical design to the body? Well, I certainly think there's a design. Now, who the de who or what designed it, whether it was millions of years of evolution or a, you know, supernatural human-like deity, that I can't say, although I enjoyed debating that endlessly. But there's certainly a brilliant design. And, uh, you know, the original anatomists were uh, right to be fascinated and to believe that it was designed by a god because it is so intelligent you know in the book i talk about for instance the eyeballs one of the most delicate and fragile parts of the external human body and how well designed the face is to protect them from direct injury as an er doctor i see facial injuries all the time alcohol uh, often plays a role but sometimes not and just the eyeball itself is often so uh, uninjured and so protected amazingly despite very severe facial injury and so in the book I detail um, how well the face is designed to protect those eyes because eyes are of course very necessary for our daily lives and survival you know you look take any body part and it will teach you something about design the foot the foot itself is brilliantly designed to carry us over the uh, over the uh, surface of the earth you know the lungs are perfectly designed to meet the atmosphere the body meets the atmosphere. Um, and even, you know, our, our feet anchor us to the ground, our lungs anchor us to the atmosphere, and even our pineal glands anchor us to the, the sun and its daily circadian rhythm. Everything inside of us uh, connects to something outside of us. And I think that's part of the brilliant design of the human body. You talked earlier about some people who abuse their bodies, particularly as teenagers. Uh, and there are those of us who overeat, who drink too much, who starve ourselves. Um, should we be more respectful or would we be more respectful if we understood the remarkable design of our feet, of our eyeballs? I mean, of course, people should read your book to understand those in in intricacies, the unseen body. Um, but But should we if you like, pray to our bodies more, at least to their design? Um, pray might be a loaded word. I'm not against praying at all. But I think uh, being cognizant of the brilliant design is always a good idea. Now, are humans good at always holding such rational thoughts in their minds, especially when they're going through more difficult periods of their life and really want to abuse their bodies in various ways with intoxicants or other things? 
it would be great if we were perfectly rational beings. Um, we're not. We're stuck in these imperfect bodies and we have imperfect consciousnesses and, you know, we do our best. And I, I, I give a lot of leeway to people um, and how they treat their own bodies, you know, and sometimes we, we abuse our bodies in the name of decoration. Um, you know, high heels are a great example to say nothing of piercings, tattoos, uh, and various other things we do to our bodies. Um, so, you know, the body is beautiful. The diversity of life, the diversity of the human body, and the diversity of ways that we use and abuse our bodies are also quite fascinating. You don't talk explicitly about the morality of doctors, but you clearly are a moral person, and the the complex morality of being a doctor comes out in the pages. You had a a, a piece in the Washington Post um, a year or two ago about some patients being in pain, some just wanting drugs. Of course, it's a piece about, at least with implications to the opioid crisis. What happens if patients just want drugs? Don't they have a right to that? Well, it, it, that's a good question. You know, which which medications, which substances that heal the human body or treat symptoms should be, uh, you know, kept behind the prescription firewall, which should be free uh, or at least available over the counter, you know, for people to buy on their own. There's a lot of quite toxic substances that can kill you and people often do use to kill themselves that are cheap and available in every grocery store without a prescription. And there are other things that are supposedly more dangerous that don't require a prescription. And I think that's that changes a lot and that's very debatable. I don't have a specific opinion on which should be free and which should be kept behind the prescription, uh, you know, kept behind the prescription pen. I do think opioids are a very unique medication. You know, the human brain has the same, has the receptors so that the substance from the opium poppy perfectly activates them and kills pain. And the use of opioids in medicine are just unparalleled. You know, people come in with severe injuries, with limbs broken, bent into unnatural question mark shapes, or suffering just from the most unimaginable painful injuries and diseases in life. And there's often nothing that can treat that pain like opioids. You know, if someone felt that the presence of the opium poppy on earth and the presence of opioid receptors in our central nervous system was evidence of a benevolent God, I wouldn't have much to argue against that with. But um, there's a side effect. Like I said earlier, everything has a side effect. And often the more powerful the therapy, the more powerful its ability to heal, the more powerful the side effects. And with opioids, you know, the human brain is very susceptible to becoming dependent and uh, addicted to these substances. And that goes for every human brain that ever existed or does exist now. Um, and, you know, life is painful in many ways, physically, psychologically, and we often reach for things that uh, dull that pain, sometimes uh, rationally and sometimes irrationally. Your book um, is that of a doctor. And of course, the business of doctors is keeping us alive. But there's a lot of stuff about mortality. Not every story, anecdote, chapter ends well. Some of your patients die, sometimes tragically, sadly. Uh, certainly, you know, death might be inevitable. Um, you talked earlier also about hacking the human body. Um, we here in Silicon Valley are now uh, in the business of, of, of hacking that body. I had Sergey Young, uh, a man who's in the longevity business as an investor and entrepreneur on the show recently, um, about living to 200. 
What do you make of the longevity movement of this idea, people like Young and Elon Musk and Peter Thiel, that we can hack the body and maybe not live forever, but certainly double or, or, or triple um, our, our lives? Well, I think I'm always glad when people are pushing forward, uh, you know, the science of understanding the human body. And often I think these lines of study, you often don't know what they will result in. They might not result in the original goal of doubling lifespan, but perhaps the physiologic and anatomical understanding that comes from these lines of inquiry will result in unexpected advances, unexpected cures. So if wealthy people are pouring money into studying the human body, I'm all for it. Um, I do think, you know, there's always there's always the catch of living longer. Are we are we is the quality of life keeping pace with the number of years, you know, that we live? And I think a lot of with, with advances in medical science, especially in an ER, you see a lot of patients who are kept alive despite many various overlapping and serious medical problems and the quality of life doesn't always um, keep pace with that. Now, that's a very individual uh, opinion or perspective on what quality of life is worth living. And that's something I would never purport to answer or push upon anyone else, my own opinions. But, um, you know, living to 200 would be not so great, I think, if the quality of life, if the debility um, and if the kind of impaired cognition doesn't uh, also improve. One of the things I really liked about uh, the book, um, uh, Jonathan, uh, The Unseen Body, is it's the book of a, a happy doctor, a contented doctor, a doctor who has acquired, I think, meaning for his life through his medical work. We've had a lot of shows about the, the misery of contemporary doctors in America. We had Robert Pearl. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He's a very prominent American doctor who says that um, the culture of medicine in America is killing not just patients, but also doctors. Um, we also had Tom Hartman on the show recently, a great critic of the current American healthcare system. You've traveled a lot. You've done a lot of your work overseas in India, um, in Russia, um, all over the world. Uh, how have you maintained your equilibrium, your optimism, your general happiness as a doctor? That's a very good and a very important question. And though I do strike, I try try to strike a happy, satisfied tone in the book, which is accurate to my actual life. I I recognize that healthcare is very imperfect, um, and there's a lot of room for improvement. And you know, the suicide rates for doctors has always been very high compared to other professions. And I have no doubt that the last year and a half will exacerbate that. And I all, you know, I teach medical students and residents. Um, as part of my job. And I often point out that fact. It's not something that I try to keep hidden. I, I say it explicitly. I say it out loud that doctors often commit suicide and people have to choose their career, choose their career paths and set up their careers to avoid burnout and avoid, uh, you know, the, the things that ultimately lead people to take their own life. It's a very serious fact about our field. I think a lot of doctors are very driven. I think a lot of doctors are you know, it's a very competitive field, whether you're on an academic tract or uh, or other tracks, it's very competitive. And I think doctors are just naturally always striving for improvement. Medicine is also a lifelong education. You never stop learning. 
And I, I, every time I go in for a shift in the emergency room, I see things I've never seen before. I'm learning all the time and that will probably never stop even if I practice for another 50 years. Now that's kind of both a gift and a curse. For me though, I think the, my natural curiosity about the human body, about disease, my love of learning really about everything, but especially about medicine and the body, the fact that it's a lifelong learning process is, keeps me very satisfied. I've also structured my career so that I don't work as much um, as other doctors, which has really allowed me to keep enjoying the job. I believe though I've go, gone through periods where I've been very uh, down and feeling very dejected. I've gotten through them, thankfully. Um, but yeah, also, you know, I've always sought adventure from the time I was a resident until today I've sought uh, medical adventures around the world. Yeah, and that really comes out in the book. I mean, m much of the wisdom in the book, and there is a lot of wisdom in this book, The Unseen Body, is derived from your experiences overseas uh, or in unusual parts, whether it's Barrow, Alaska, or Iceland, or India, or Mongolia. Um, you're not only a, a, a traveling a traveler intellectually in terms of voyaging around the body, but also a, a geographical traveler. And that certainly has made you much wiser, not just about the world, but about the human body. That's absolutely true. And I think even before I went to medical school, I was fascinated by travel and traveled quite a bit around the world. And I was also fascinated by the natural world, you know, the, the one right outside my door at home, but also the, the varieties of natural world I met as I traveled um, up to different parts of the world. And I think I brought that same curiosity to medicine where, um, you know, learning about the body in different contexts was, has always kept me going. And then the additional aspect of practicing medicine in some very remote parts of the world uh, has also been very fascinating for me, especially within different cultural contexts. You know, I've worked in ERs in Arctic Alaska among the Inupiat, and I've worked in ERs in South Dakota among the Oglala Sioux. I've always been fascinated by different cultures. And um, being able to practice medicine in those cultures has taught me a lot, as you said, about the human body, about how cultural and geographic uh, specifics can shape the way we live, uh, the way we are healthy, the way we experience disease, and also the way medicine is practiced. There's a lot of shit in the book. And I mean that in the best way, uh, Jonathan. Uh, you have a wonderful section on feces, and uh, particularly in terms of your experience in India. I hope people who are listening or watching this um, won't have had their breakfast. But tell me what you learned about feces in India and what you write about in the book. Uh, you have a wonderful anecdote about going to India and being very, very careful for a while and then letting your guard down. I think we've all done that in India. Yes, it's not a unique story. Um, but uh, yes, you know, wait for the feces chapter after you eat your breakfast. This is another example where, you know, the, this is the reality of the human body, right? Feces is kind of the most hidden the most shameful, quote unquote, part. But of, also the most real. And I mean, the most, well, not the most essential, but as essential as anything else. I mean, we couldn't exist without it. Of course, absolutely essential. The functioning of the gastrointestinal tract is a daily reality for absolutely every human that ever lived or lives now or will. Even, even the queen, Jonathan, right? Even the queen. Everybody produces feces, uh, as we say. So, but... Um, 
you know, feces was something that when I was, when I started my medical training, you know, you're thrown into these situations that you never imagined before where you're discussing things like feces in incredibly detailed uh, depths with people you just met, you know, complete strangers. The doctor-patient relationship is this very bizarre interaction between often two strangers discussing the most intimate details of the body of one of those, you know, participants, the patient usually. And so uh, as I write in the feces chapter, you know, early on in, as a medical student, I was helping a nurse clean up a patient who had soiled themselves, who was suffering from a very virulent form of bacteria. And I thought it was one of the grossest experiences that I ever had. But this more experienced nurse actually asked me out on a date as we were cleaning up this poor patient. And that was a kind of a window into how people can really get used to anything. And when you work in healthcare for a while, you really get used to uh, talking about things like feces, you know, handling them with gloves, but uh, smelling them part of the job every day, you know, becomes like a water cooler conversation, basically. And when I went to India, that perspective came with me. I was a medical student there several years into my training. And I discovered that travelers in India also discuss feces in incredible detail. And it's almost like talking about the weather because all of most foreigners in India are at risk or perhaps actively suffering from a gastrointestinal infection. And so discussing the consistency and other aspects of one's feces is a daily thing uh, in India as a foreigner, just as it is in the, in the healthcare field. Um, and so, yes, I got my own bout of diarrhea while in India, and that did teach me some, some valuable lessons about about the you know this most unholy product of the human body you not only have a chapter on diarrhea and feces but one on urine um you had a, a piece in the post recently learning to love this the secret language of urine and um you uh you 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 argue in the book or you you say in the book that urine is your your favorite uh, human discharge what's what's so great about urine jonathan well, urine is really fascinating on many levels. Uh, I do think it's the most fascinating bodily fluid, and I, I challenge anyone to argue against that or to propose another one that's more fascinating. But when I learned about urine as a medical student, my first, uh, the first way in which I became fascinated by it was how useful it was in understanding what's going on inside my patients. The urine almost uh, has this clairvoyance where it can tell you about disease processes that are going on completely unrelated to the kidney or the urine stream. You know, you can see breakdown of muscle resulting in the urine just by looking at its color sometimes. You can see problems with the liver, with the bile. You can even see evidence of a recent meal someone ate, perhaps beets or asparagus do their own individual things to a person's urine stream. Urine has this kind of overseeing um, nature because the kidneys themselves sort of oversee all the other organs and keep things balanced in a way that serves all the other organs. Kidneys are almost a, an underpinning for the correct functioning of all the other organs. And so urine as well uh, can, can just give you this amazing amount of information about disease and health throughout the body. And I was very impressed by uh, watching nephrologists who are kidney specialists interpret urine to understand disease processes in ways to me that really just seemed like a wizard, pretty much. Uh, talking about putting you off uh, one's breakfast, your section on um, 
sexual organs on genitalia is not particularly sexual or erotic. Um, but it was, again, a, a, a wonderful journey into the truths of um, our reproductive organs. Uh, what's so interesting about them, apart from the sexual element, Jonathan? Right, apart from the obvious. Well, I, I found that genitals were a very particular organ in many ways. You know, every other organ, every single other body part is necessary for the moment-to-moment maintenance of health of the human body. And genitals are not. You know, they don't even start fully functioning until after the, our first decade of life. They're the slowest to come online. And then in many ways, they uh, are not necessary for the moment-to-moment or day-to-day maintenance of health. In fact, they're often antithetical to that since they, you know, in the drive to satisfy them, we often do things that might not be compatible with survival or compatible with health uh, in many ways. And they're almost uniquely a future-oriented organ. You know, they drive us to do things that will not benefit us or come to fruition for a long time afterward. And that makes them very unique uh, among uh, the our internal, internal organs. Uh, I like the, your use of metaphor of the human body. Um, you, you talk about them um, as being like apartment buildings. What is it about the human body that makes them equivalent, at least, of course, in metaphorical terms to apartments? Well, I think the apartment uh, building metaphor is most useful to understand the cardiovascular system. So you could imagine that our body is made of about made up of about a trillion cells. And you can think of each of those cells as a self-contained flat or apartment in a, a massive apartment building. Now, to run an apartment building correctly, every single unit must have a source of fresh water coming in pumped under pressure to come out of shower heads and faucets um, in order to you know, serve the people living in those apartments to drink, to clean, to carry out their daily functions. And in the same way, every cell in the human body requires arterial blood pumped under pressure, carrying oxygen and other nutrients to each apartment. And then every apartment also on the converse side, after they use that water and it becomes you know, gray water, whatever they've used it for, in the toilet, in the shower, in the sink, it it then flows back out under gravity alone. And the same happens in the body with the venous system where blood comes under pressure through arteries and then drains away, carrying waste, having, having had its nutrients and oxygen extracted by the cell, and then it drains back to the heart under gravity alone. And, you know, we have to make sure the pressure in that system is adequate. For instance, to take a shower in a penthouse apartment on the top of a building, you need good water pressure for it to spray out of that shower head with enough force. In the same way, our, our, our blood pressure in the arterial system must be high enough to deliver fresh blood to the body's own penthouse apartment, which would be the brain, even when we're standing upright. Yeah, you put it very beautifully. Uh, I'm not sure beautifully is the right word. You put it in a very clear utilitarian language. And as it happens, when I was reading your book, I had a problem with my shower, not my body, but my actual shower. So of course, what I did was look for plumbers in San Francisco, routers and plumbers. And in a sense, you suggest in the book that a doctor is a plumber of the body. Um, Should we think of doctors like we think of plumbers as essential workers, as dirty work? 
It's definitely dirty work, I would say. And as we discussed relative to the feces chapter, it is quite dirty work. Um, it's also very intellectual work. You know, there's a lot of problem solving. There's a lot of detective work. There's a lot of thinking through physiology. Well, that's I, true of plumbing too, Jonathan. That's why they're so well paid these days, particularly in San Francisco. Absolutely. And let me add that a hospital or an emergency room cannot function without good plumbing, literally in its faucets and, and elsewhere. So we, uh, the healthcare, you know, a patient getting better is as dependent on the, pl the hospital's plumber as they are on their physician. That's, that's absolute truth. And I do think, when, I think I often phrase myself as a plumber, you know, patients come for my medical opinion. It's not God's truth. It's not written in stone. It's my own personal uh, perspective, my opinion, my thoughts based on my experience, my learning. Another doctor can have a different opinion. If, if medicine was pure science and not a whole lot of art thrown on top of the science, then uh, any doctor would give you the quote right answer, but that's not the reality. Our, our knowledge is imperfect and therefore the practice of medicine is, is, is imperfect. So I often say to my patients that I encourage them to get a second opinion. I can be wrong. I'm imperfect like everyone else. Um, I'm like a plumber offering them an opinion. This is what I think is wrong and this is what I think is the solution. I encourage you, especially my family, when they've seen their doctor, I tell them to get second and third opinions not listen to me, not listen to their doctor. And I think that's very important with plumbers too, because perspectives will be different. Yeah. And you make that very clear in the book that doctors are anything but godlike, um, which is again, one of the critiques, I guess, of the, the medical industry, which uh, Robert Pearl talks about. And of course, you're prisoners of history too. Being a doctor in 2021 is different from being a doctor in 1921 or 1821, not only scientifically, but culturally. You had a piece recently about the fight to eat, fight for the right to eat seal bladder, which I think comes out of your experiences in Alaska. Um, and you have an interesting section on fat and on the contemporary changes in, 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 in fat from a, a medical point of view and, 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 and from the body. Uh, why is fat and, and fat shaming and our issue in terms of our relations to our body, why has that become so central and so controversial in our culture today? Right. Well, I think as I, as I point out in the chapter, I think fat is a very unique body part in that it is so overlain with a kind of cultural perspective with disdain. You know, we often look at ourselves in the mirror and curse the fat that's on our bodies. Um, Why, though? No. I mean, you know, we, we think of Henry VIII 500 years ago, and he took great pride in his fat. Right. Well, I think the context changes as well. You know, even the average citizen in the U.S. lives uh, a life of such luxury that I think even royalty from 500 years ago could not have imagined. And so the context changes so much, what, how we live, the kind of physical work we have to do. And therefore, our perspective on our bodies change as well. When, when hunger was the norm, obesity was a, was a luxury. Obesity was a sign of living the good life. Um, and now things have you know, completely reversed, where um, obesity is a sign of overindulgence, a sign of lack of health, um, being thin and fit is... Um, you know, the, the desired thing for most people. But, and that's also different culturally and that's different in, in different parts of the world. And that's not universal, you know, food, uh, there's still hunger in the US, even while there's food overabundance in many parts of the country. 
But I do think that fat is, like many other diseases, uh, not that fat alone is a disease, but it does cause disease, not in everybody, but in many people. And uh, a lot of diseases come from the lives we live today. You know, the lack of physical activity, we just don't have to do it anymore. The lack of, um, you know, healthy, minimally processed foods, etc. Modern life has put a lot of strains on the human body. Modern life uh, has changed our physiology. When I worked in South Dakota among the Oglala Sioux, you know, you can see, I think, most clearly how modern life affects human physiology. When people go from being hunter-gatherers to being, you know, couch potatoes like the rest of us in just a few short decades, you see the strain and you see the result. The result is metabolic syndromes like diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, and obesity is another aspect of, of modern human life. But as I point out in the chapter, obesity is uh, especially seen differently than those other conditions. You know, for a lot of physicians, blood pressure, cholesterol, chronic kidney disease, diabetes are, medic are diseases that we treat with medications, as where obesity is a moral failing and not a disease of modern life that we should treat with uh with medications we see it differently and that's that that exposes our own biases and that i think gets in the way of helping people uh understand and perhaps improve their their own physiology well one final question dr jonathan reisman i this is you need to give some advice for for everyone from the book um you just talked about fat and eating so jonathan um should we eat more or less chopped liver? Would that make us better or worse? Well, liver is one of the most healthy things that you can put in your mouth. And of um, course, this was a, a joke question because you have a, a very entertaining anecdote about chopped liver in the book, but uh, go on. Right. I hated chopped liver as a child, but when I, once I went to med school and learned about the wonders of the liver, I gave it another chance and now I'm a big fan. I certainly understand why people would not want to eat liver, both perhaps because it comes from an animal and also because it has perhaps the strongest taste of any internal organ. Um, but it is extremely healthy. One of the healthiest things you can put in your mouth and swallow basically. Um, so I think people would be probably healthier if they uh, did eat it. And in fact, iron deficiency is one of the most common micronutrient deficiencies in the world. Um, you know, partly due to menstruation, but uh, I think if there was liver available for all of humanity, that would uh, go a long way towards improving that problem. Well, maybe that's why Jews love chopped liver so much. Um, Jonathan Reisman, really, uh, really fun and erudite, com uh, at least you're the erudite one, I'm asking the dumb questions, but uh, the book itself, The Unseen Body, um, a Doctor's Journey Through the Hidden Wonders of, of Human Anatomy is, is a tremendous read. It's short, it's sharp, it's entertaining. Congratulations. The book is just out, Jonathan. Um, you're talking to me from Philadelphia, the city of doctors. What else should people be reading in these strange times where we're still reeling in a, in a post-COVID world? Yes, well, I... I... In the last year and a half, I've sought out a lot of very abstract uh, readings that kind of bring me away from the stresses of daily life. So one of the books I'm reading now is called The Sound of Life's Unspeakable Beauty. It's by a German violin maker, Martin Schleske, who I actually met a few years ago. 
um, in Germany. And uh, I think it's so abstract from the stresses of daily life, especially as a doctor during the pandemic, that it kind of brings me away from uh, from some of the stresses. So I encourage people to, you know, think deeply and on a large scale, pull back from daily life might be helpful. And another book I'm reading is Mary Roach's new book, Fuzz. I'm a big fan of Mary Roach. Yeah, Mary uh, uh, blurbs your book. Uh, her, you write in a way in her style. Yes, she she got a copy of my book and has been praising it, and I'm very uh, very gratified by that. She is, she's a local writer, San Francisco writer. Yeah, she's probably one of the all time great science writers, and I wouldn't I would admit that I tried to emulate her style in many ways in writing my own book. And she just came out with her own new book, Fuzz. So I'm reading that as well. Well, I think uh, that those are wise choices, Jonathan. I think it's a wise book. I, I, I don't think you're in competition with Mary Roach. You write as a doctor from a different perspective, but it's a great achievement. Uh, congratulations. People really need to read this book. And I hope we'll get you on the show again to talk about the human body, the anatomy, and the rest of uh, your wise thoughts. Thank you so much, Jonathan Reisman. Thank you for having me.